0: Active 911 is proud to partner with the Code 3 podcast. Active 911 designs technology for first responders to help heroes save lives. Learn more at Active911.com.
1: When it comes to search, they have to be proficient of not operating off of a hose line. That's normally in the realm of a truck company. In the rural setting, that department may be primarily focused on fire attack. They're having to change a complete mindset
0: Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighter's Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott.
2: That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. You know, smaller fire departments often work with less personnel than they really need. That means there are very few specialists in a volunteer department or a rural agency. One of the specialists you'll miss right away if you join one is the truckie. While city departments are having good-natured arguments over who's better or who's more important, small town engine companies need to do both jobs. And sometimes I need to do them with only two or three firefighters on the engine. How do you manage those roles? What's most important when you arrive on scene? Today's guest works at both a career department and he's a volunteer fire chief, and he's got some thoughts. Justin Bailey is a returning guest to the Code 3 podcast. He's the fire chief of the Oliver Springs, Tennessee Volunteer Fire Department. He's also a master firefighter with the Knoxville, Tennessee Fire Department, where he's worked since 2007. And Justin Bailey joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3.
1: Well, thank you, Scott. It's great to be back.
2: We're talking about engine companies that need to have trucky skills. So let's start by defining the problem. What we're really talking about here is teaching the truck company skills to engine company crews, right?
1: Yes, sir, it is. And more importantly, in the rural environment, which is something I operate in often, is that a lot of times in small volunteer agencies and those that create or that protect a rural environment, they don't have a true truck company coming to them. So the engine company themselves have to do both functions. They have to be able to operate in dual modes.
2: Let's look at the skills that they'll need to have to take the place of a truck company. First of all, searching for victims in a structure fire seems like a given. What might the engine company not realize that full-time truckies do know?
1: Engine companies typically going after the fire. Their primary focus is a, a fire attack and fire control, whereas the Truck companies kind of sizing up the structure so that they know victim location. They're looking for bedroom signs that 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 room may be occupied, whereas in this setup and where an engine company has to do that other function, when it comes to search, they have to be proficient of not operating off of a hose line or being proficient to operate off of a hose line. So that's normally in the realm of a truck company, especially in, in true more urban environments, that in the rural setting, that department may be primarily focused on fire attack, that they're having to change a complete mindset because they're having, to, they're having to come away from a comfort.
2: Well, that comfort would be carrying the line with them, right?
1: Absolutely. It's, a, it's not a crutch. It's a, you know, a true way of knowing where out is. So when they get to functioning in that environment of, you know, always have that hose line, the hose line always uh, points my way out. When I'm operating without a hose line, you know, now I'm, I'm paying more attention to my surroundings. I'm, I'm focusing on counting walls, counting corners, you know, knowing my way out by other methods, you know, identifying windows and, and things of that nature.
2: What's the risk that some smaller departments are going to just say, well, take a line in there with you anyway and do both?
1: So the risk comes with proficiency, the proficiency of the search. I'm I'm a lot more proficient and faster without a hose line than I am with a hose line. I'm going to be able to get to some areas that the hose line might trip me up.
2: All right, that makes sense, but if there's a limited number of people, which there's likely to be at a rural department, it's got to be tough to say we're going to let the fire attack wait while we go in to search. What I'm wondering, though, is... If they if they have someone who says, "Hey, I think there's still somebody inside there," that's one thing. But if they don't have anyone telling them that someone's inside, do they take that risk and let the let the fire continue to go while they do a search, knowing that there might not even be anyone in there? No, no.
1: I still say that that engine company is focusing primarily on fire attacks, especially if there's an unknown. You know, fire goes out, everything gets better. It's the the kind of a cliche of saying things. And it, it holds true that if there's an unknown or there's not um a mom or a dad or somebody saying, Hey, my 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 kids right in that window, the unknown comes the you know, fire attack first. Because if I can improve the conditions overall, I can improve the conditions for that v- possible victim that I might be coming up on, you know, during that fire attack.
2: What about, and I know this may sound Weird for an engine company. What about a can? Would that help, or is that too cumbersome?
1: I don't think uh, searching with a can is too cumbersome. Actually, I think, especially in a or at least in in my area, in a rural environment, in my area, the two and a half gallon water can has been a lost art. You can do a lot with the two and a half gallons. It does provide you a little bit of protection while you're doing that search. Uh, it's good fire extinguisher for incipient stage fires. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that comes from that is that people need to practice if they're wanting to use that. They need to know what that can do. And that just comes back down to the good old-fashioned, you know, training with, with the equipment that we have. If that's what your department is going to try to implement, they need to be trained in using that tool
2: so that they'll know at the baseline how, how long they have with two and a half gallons of water. So now they're probably going to have to ladder the building. What problems does that present?
1: Some problems come up from an engine company perspective. It really depends on the design of your apparatus. I'll use when I'm at my full-time job, uh, the, the ladder apparatus and the truck companies, they're their apparatuses are designed for the ladders to be deployed very rapidly, either coming in, uh, through the back uh, straight off right at shoulder level, or even some of them are designed that they may be side-loaded, but they're still side-loaded for quick access. The problem you see with some manufacturers, especially on the engine company apparatuses, and I'll use my, my rural department that I respond with in my volunteer agency, The ladders are mounted high, so with those ladders being mounted high, they cannot access the ladder with one or two people. You know, it it takes a little bit of work. Uh, Some ladders are are accessed uh, by hydraulic drop down. Well, if it's a hydraulic drop down, that takes a little bit of time for the hydraulic drop down to sit down and be able to deploy. So that. Just getting the ladders off the truck can sometimes be an issue from the start. The second thing is, is from a rule perspective, is being able to deploy that ladder with one person, being proficient in what that ladder can do. And a lot of times in, in more of a, in the area that I'm in, sometimes that's one of the things that just gets put by the wayside because, you know, they don't use the ladders that often off of an engine company. So they don't they don't think about it, they don't practice with it. So when it comes down to using them, it can be not a three-ring circus, but it can be <laughs> something along the lines of a a little bit of a difficult task.
2: Well, it sounds like you're saying that when you practice the stuff, you have to practice getting them off the rig too, not just standing them up off the ground.
1: Absolutely. And I always like to say anything less than twenty-four footer is definitely a one person ladder. So being able to get that ladder off the truck, being able to deploy that ladder by yourself is an essential skill for anybody on the fire ground, not just the engine company or not just the ladder company. It has to be done for everybody.
2: All right. Now, what about venting the roof? That's something a truck company would probably do. I mean, in most cases. Is this a limited number of people in engine companies, is it recommended that they go up and give that a shot?
1: I personally would not recommend it. I would personally recommend the fire being extinguished prior, and that's always going to be one of those tasks that, depending on your system that you work in, is depend on whether you utilize vertical ventilation or not. Uh, some systems don't use vertical ventilation. They they are wholeheartedly, you know, horizontal ventilation in a residential setting, on a residential roof, especially with truss systems that nobody gets on the roof. That's their system. If you are going to be performing that skill set, uh, be proficient with that skill set, have the training of that skill set. And just note that that skill set does take a little bit of manpower away from other other tasks that can be being performed on the fire ground. So if it comes to ventilation, if I'm going to vert vent versus uh, horizontal ventilation, it comes down to manpower, really. If I can make the same task be completed on a horizontal ventilation, it might just take one person to do that skill set versus two and three.
2: And they can always use PPV.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Is there a risk in particular with PPV that they need to be watching out for?
1: So a major risk with positive pressure ventilation is the fact that I am introducing into the fire environment a large amount of oxygen. Now I can make it a wind-driven fire. So a a common hazard is fire that is in void spaces or not completely extinguished. So if I'm, if I'm utilizing positive pressure ventilation, at least in my area, we make sure that the fire's out prior to someone starting a fan. And then even prior to them starting a fan, we make sure that, you know, the void spaces are covered and make sure there's no fire in the attic space. that's, That's hazards that we try to mitigate prior to starting that fan because we know that if we do start the fan and we find those, that fire has a tendency to get away from us.
2: Do you ever recommend just going ahead and ventilating it, even though the fire isn't out?
1: no i do not
2: hmm.
1: and that's just due to the hazards of it and you know there's there's some not really schools of thought it's it's an it's a known thing but like positive pressure attack some people some departments utilize positive pressure attack and that's just one thing that at least in my region is not taught and not utilized because you got to have the right team on 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 that fire that day and in a rural setting in a volunteer setting and stuff you might not always have the same guys there all the time
2: uh you've got to have the guys who really know how to do it which you might if you were on a career department that had a regular schedule but you can't count on that with a volunteer department
1: true i mean and every system's a little different cuz some systems have uh duty nights and duty stations and uh, I'm coming from a, a volunteer setting that a lot of callback is done. So people are responding from their homes and it's based on their availability. So today I might be available but tomorrow I'm not.
2: All right. Let's talk about forcible entry. Do most engine crews have enough practice with that? They have the tools but do they have the muscle memory to use them the right way?
1: I would hope so because I would consider that a, a basic essential skill of a firefighter. Obviously, all of us can do better. All of us can practice more. I think the biggest thing that I look at is that, does that engine company get the practice in it? And sometimes that's a no. You know, sometimes it's a yes. It really depends on the system that they're operating in. I will use the system that I operate in. Uh, the first in-engine company uh, is also the primary jurisdiction, which is relying on doing everything themselves prior to mutual aid getting there. So, those firemen are, you know, proficient in doing forceful entry tactics. Now, the problem is, is do we have enough manpower to do it? You know, some volunteer systems have got one and two people on the truck. So, can they perform forceful entry by themselves, you know, efficiently by themselves. So that comes down to skill and technique.
2: I'll be back with more right after this.
0: Looking to decrease your response times? With Active Alert, get calls straight to your phone from Dispatch via the app. Available for Android, iPhones, and tablets. Plus, get directions to the scene. Have all CAD notes in one place. See who's responding. And quickly identify nearby Map marks like hydrants and preplans, with a low per device price active alert is a must-have tool for first responders see for yourself why it's trusted by thousands of firefighters nationwide start your free trial today at active911.com
2: let's talk about your experience You've mentioned several times your, your paid department versus your volunteer department. Are you in a position where you get, you get to a volunteer department event for training and you shake your head and go, you guys aren't doing what we need to do because we don't have enough people. Or is, is it understood that you're going to have to do more and let's get prepared for it.
1: I look at it as we understand that we're not going to have everybody there. And we have to prepare for that. So I'll use a simple, I always use the analogy of like vehicle extrication. You go to a vehicle extrication class and you'll have eight people around cutting on a single car scenario. And you take that same scenario and you do it at three o'clock on a Monday. And you ask your, your people and you say, hey, how many people are going to be there? We're going to say, well, maybe three. Okay. Now your scenario is three people same thing on a house fire in a house fire scenario and stuff and I've done this several times with my guys in Oliver Springs of hey you're not gonna have ten people as soon as you get there so what can you do with two people okay wait a few minutes and then oh here's your other person now they show up now what can you do and you stagger step out the training and that way you show your members in real time, what their expectations is going to be. What, can, what skill sets can we get done? You know, what, what priorities do we have to do? You know, do we, do we hold off search? Do we hold off ventilation? Because we've only got two people, so all we can do is put water on the fire. Do we have a few more? You know, that, it's all based on your system and your mutual aid. And also, you know, I, I factored in there and stated, you know, a water supply thing. You know, do I hold off some tactics just based on my water supply? It, it's, it's very fluid. So you have to train, you have to prepare for that with the manpower that you know that you're going to get. So your training is based around that as well.
2: And as you pointed out, sometimes you may have three people. I know of some situations where they've had two, but you still have to get in and do the job. Does your volunteer department train enough?
1: With what we have, we do. A lot of it is based on availability. So like when I'm talking about training in the volunteer realm, I always say, hey, more is good. I always say more is good. And that we always need more. The hard part is, is uh, that work-life balance. So knowing that your guys may only be available for two out of the four trainings for that month. That's good. Uh, Knowing that, you know, this month based on availability that this member may not be there. Okay. Give me some more next month. And I always look at it as whatever I can get, it's good. Uh, Can it be better? Absolutely. That's, that's everywhere. Um, You know, it's just, based on what you have and it, you know, if a member comes up to me and says, I can't this month because of a family event or my kids got ball practice or something. I have, I mean, I completely understand that. Do I know it's going to affect some efficiencies? Yes. But I also know that if I push against him or her on, on the family side or on the work side that I'm going to lose because that's important to them and i have to i have to balance that unfortunately
2: (laughs) it's got to be difficult because if you push too hard they'll, they'll finally just leave but at the same time given the number of fires versus medical calls that fire departments respond to now training is more important than ever
1: Absolutely, and, and you know it's one of them things of you can't train enough for something that is trying its best to kill you. And EMS causes the same. You can't train enough for it. The hard part is trying to find that balance so that if if I have that one member that's gun ho and wants to go to every training, I also caution them to to find a balance because if not they'll burn themselves out or they'll look at other people and say hey you know jim can only make two two trains a month you know he's not giving everything i'm giving and it's like well jim's giving everything he can give and you know he's preparing for the same thing that you're preparing for just at his level or what he can commit
2: yeah, it's a tough balancing act, but I suppose it's something that we've always dealt with and we always will.
1: No, the days of uh, everybody lining up the door to join doesn't seem like they're there anymore. Uh, we're just having to adapt and, and be a little bit more creative in our recruitments. And, you know, that's that's every department. that's That's volunteer departments. That's even on the career side now as well but you know the, the biggest thing is trying to trying to show people and prove to people why they need to belong to the
2: department all right justin bailey thanks for talking with me today on code 3
1: thank you scott have a great day
2: and there is more about what engine companies in rural areas should know about truck ops at our website code 3 com slash truck ops That's code3podcast.com slash truckops, all one word. Take a look. And don't forget, you can still find Code 3 merch. Just go to code3podcast.com slash store. Support this show, wear our logo. Who knows, maybe someone will ask about the podcast. Then you can tell them about it. I want to thank our sponsor, Active911 for their help in bringing this show to you. Find out more at Active911.com. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I sure hope you'll be here. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe.
0: To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.